Welcome to the discussion, Federal Work and Cyber Risk, Two Sides of the Same Coin, sponsored by Menlo Security. Here's today's moderator, Jason Miller. Welcome to the discussion. My guest today is Jack Miller, the head of global professional services for Menlo Security. Jack, welcome to the discussion. Hey, Jason. Thanks a lot for having me here. Let me set a little context for our conversation today. We've all heard the stories about how the move to remote work during the pandemic has increased the threat surface among agencies and the private sector. As employees worked from home on a more permanent basis, concerns definitely rose about personal Wi-Fi, home computers, other devices that we'll say may not be as secure as what they use in the office. But the conventional wisdom that says this decentralized access leads to greater cyber risk, it doesn't have to be the case. Agencies can open up access to improve employee mission success while retaining visibility into network and application performance and limit cyber risks. Agencies can take tangible steps to further ensure employees can access data and applications from anywhere at any time, while also lowering their exposure to cyber threats. Now, what are those steps? Well, that's where my guest comes in. Once again, my guest is Jack Miller, the head of global professional services for Menlo Security. Jack, I just gave a really brief experience of that we've all had over the last year plus. So let's start with this idea of empowering the federal workforce, empowering any workforce, and how to deal with this idea of uh, make sure that the the, t the information that they are using, they need for mission, does not differ from what this from what they need to serve citizens. How, how do you find that right balance? Yeah, so you know that's a that's a it's a tricky challenge that I think affects you know the federal government um, and and organizations that are very security focused more than uh, more than most other organizations out there, right? So historically, we look back over time. We saw that uh, that the, the way a lot of agencies addressed this was by implementing an air gap, and uh, you know many I remember years and years and years ago going into an FBI office and they actually had you know two computers sitting on the desk, right? One for accessing internal systems and one for going to other places on the internet. Obviously that that causes challenges for productivity, right? But the problem is when you when you get rid of that and you go to one system, then what happens is we lock down access to to things on the internet because we're too concerned about the risk that they might introduce. Right, so so the, the ways we can address this and move forward is is taking that same approach of a of a an air gap, but really kind of making it more of a virtual air gap, right? So we want to allow our employees to be able to access different things on the internet. We just want to do it in a way that we know that they're 100% protected when they're accessing those things. All right, Jack, you open the door. I'll just walk through it. So how do you do it, right? What what is a virtual <laughs> air gap? Let's start there. Describe what that means, and then. Okay, so we got to do this. How do we do it? Yeah, yeah. So you know the devil's in the details, right? Um, so when, when you're when so so the first thing is when we look back at our threat research, we see that that the vast majority of attacks that are out there today are web-based attacks, right? So they 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 the the well, there may be multiple steps to the kill chain. Typically, they'll usually start or at some point along the kill chain there will be a website that's involved, or it could be an email that's involved with a, with a, clink, a, lit, a link that gets clicked on, right? And so um, what happens when you go to a website is that website runs a lot of code locally on your endpoint. And if you, uh, if you and, the, and the, the, the people watching this can do it, right? If you go to any website at all out there and, uh, and then you right click view source, right? You'll see all the code that's running locally on your computer. Well, that code may be bad. That code could be malicious. You may have vulnerabilities on your endpoint that that code can leverage. And so with the, um, with the physical air gap that have been implemented for many years, 
right? What was said was that we don't want that code to run on the endpoint because this endpoint is trusted, right? And we allow this endpoint to access our internal systems. So we gave employees another endpoint, a, a separate one that wasn't connected to the production network that only had access to the internet with the, with the, um, the belief that it didn't matter if that endpoint got compromised. It didn't matter if it went out and it got malware and there was a vulnerability and it, and it got rooted because it wasn't connecting to our internal systems. The, the challenge is that not only was that a really bad solution because it made it very difficult for our users to be efficient in what they're doing, having to switch back and forth, but the reality is that that separate system that they used for an air gap over time really starts to become a critical production system. And so now what happens when that system is compromised because the websites you let it go to? Um, the, 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 the people were using those computers for a reason to support their work efforts, right? And if those systems are down or those systems are compromised, they're back in the same boat, right? So with, um, with virtual isolation, right, we do all this virtually. The, the clients um, connect to a surrogate browser that is either it can be either on-prem um, or it can be in the cloud. And then that browser connects to the external website for you. All code from that website is run in the virtual browser, not in your browser on your, on your desktop. It's just more or less kind of think of it as, uh, as um, screenshots, right? It's kind of easiest to think of it in the old uh, mainframe days, right? It's almost like you're at a reflections terminal. Right, and you have this other uh, system providing access for you. So, you know, what we found is that we have two types of customers. Um, one are customers that that are not super locked down today. Um, fortunately for us, most of those are not in the federal space, right? So for them, it's how can we come in and really reduce the risk they have today by by implementing the isolation for all the sites they're going to today. But then we have other customers that are very, very security focused and they're very locked down today. So for instance, things like uncategorized websites, they don't allow access to. What we can do or, or any other vendor that does virtualization for that matter could do is we could say, look, for uncategorized websites, because that's a, a large risk area, we can uh, virtualize those. So now we can give your employees access to those types of sites. So this kind of brings up the point you talked about the, the, the um, the difference in information, right? It becomes difficult when you're an employee. And you know some of this may be a lot more uh, exacerbated in, in state and local government because there's more interactions maybe with the constituency. But when you're interacting with someone over the phone and they're looking at stuff and doing stuff and they're talking to you about it, but you can't see that information or the information you see looks differently, it, it, it makes for a difficult conversation to make sure you're all on the same page. So by, by implementing some sort of virtual air gap or virtual isolation, suddenly we can start to allow the internal employees to access those same sites, even though those sites may be risky had they not been isolated. It sounds to me like you, obviously you're describing something that the Defense Information Systems Agency put in place that you guys are a big part of, the cloud-based internet isolation program. This has been, in, in many ways, a huge success story for DISA, for the DOD. Can you give me any sort of kind of update about how that's going in the sense of, of you've tested it, you know this works, and, and, and that's that's the virtual air gap you're talking about? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, we're in, the, we're in the process of doing the deployment right now with all the different mission partners. We do have... Uh, we do have several hundred thousand people uh, from different mission partners already on the platform today, um, and everything's working great. So it is uh, it is tested and tried and true. Now, there's there's 
challenges to to get there like any kind of big project right there's a lift you have to get through and and by doing the proper planning up front and trying to have good pilot groups that are representative so we can identify issues uh, before they become impactful to to you know broad swaths of the organization uh, it helps move things along really quickly uh, the good news is for anybody doing a deployment of these types of technologies is that after you get through the initial hurdle uh, you do reach a level of, of homeostasis where everything kind of runs pretty smoothly after that. So um, it is going well. We've got a lot of excitement from the different mission partners. Um, they're, they're, they're anxious to get on and we're, we're scrambling to try to support them. It's, you know, it's tough to do when you have such a large organization with so many people, but, uh, but we're super happy to be engaged with them right now. Appreciate the update on the DISA program. I know it's something that a lot of people are watching. So uh, a lot of attention being paid to it because it's such a, it, there's a lot of innovation happening, but it also brings up the bigger piece that people maybe not understand where the threats are coming from or how to detect the threats or maybe some misconceptions. Because as you mentioned, someone has to click on a link, that link takes you to a web browser. That's actually where the threat is, not the quote unquote link itself. So maybe walk me through a little bit about why this misconception exists around what the threats are and then how to detect them. Yeah, look, I think that that historically going back, right, when when you you think of hacks, you think of uh, in hackers, you think of these people that are really sophisticated and, and really um, advanced and, and really targeting the adversaries that they're going after. And, you know, this was really, I think, reinforced for a generation of us with with movies like war games and stuff like that. Right. And and, you know, the reality is, is that the, the way the attackers attack today is they, they, even for targeted attacks, they try to have as big of an attack surface area as possible because they never know where they can, uh, where they can find that little area, that little hole that they can get in and get elsewhere. And so and I think you've got this disconnect where, where you know, most people seem to think like, look, I'm just here to do my job. I'm not, maybe I don't have you know, access to, to top secret information, right? Maybe I'm kind of a lower level person so why would anyone go after me i'm just uh you know i'm going to websites that are that are big companies out there so obviously they're not compromised i probably don't have to worry about them and so there's a lot of i think assumptions that get made and you know at the end of the day that's kind of the difference between a security person and a non-security person is we're all kind of paranoid and and we look at that every interaction we have from our computer is a potential opportunity for an attacker to to, to break in and take over and do bad things. And, and you know, we try and we try and we try over the years to, to educate and train our workforce to make sure that they really understand this. And, and even if we can get some fundamental level of understanding, you know, the workforce, the, the employees all still have their challenges that they need to deal with and their goals they need to accomplish. And, and they're under stress and pressure and timelines to get things done. And they're just trying to do their job. And so it, it, it loses focus and it creates this opportunity where whether they're going to an unknown random website or they're going to, you know, a large news organization, either of those websites could potentially host malicious software that could compromise them. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, how can we understanding that that our employees are our employees and they're going to do what they're going to do and we want to be able to enabling them to be as effective and efficient as possible right how can we implement controls that are that are seamless and transparent to them that allow them to go to do their job that allow them to once in a while make mistakes like everybody does 
but still have them protected and covered at the same time, right? And that's why we really have to switch the approach. And, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, uh, you know, remote work and how everything's changed and all these different devices. And it's just, uh, it, it compounds it and it compounds it and it compounds it, right? It's, it's distracted drivers get in accidents, distracted employees, you know, have bad things inadvertently happen to them when they're on the internet. I mean, it's, it is kind of what it is and it's the workforce we deal with today. It's almost taken the human factor out of it because you're putting up, if you will, the seatbelts and the airbags and the detect the sensors in the front to tell you to break. It's giving you all these kind of um, the bubble around you because as a human, you're going to make a mistake. So how do we protect you from yourself in many ways? Exactly. Exactly. You, you, you hit the nail on the head, right? If, if, if we can implement processes where we say it doesn't matter if someone makes a mistake, we're still safe. We're always going to be better off doing that, you know, whether that's a combination of processes and technology than trying to think everybody's got to be perfect all the time, right? That the saying always goes, and I, I hate to, uh, you know, be repetitive and say things that everybody watching this has heard a million times, is that, you know, we have to be right every time. The bad guy only has to be right once, right? Well, the flip side of that coin is that is that your employees have to be right every time, and, and they mess up only once. Is there a bad person there waiting to pounce? There's a good chance there might be, especially if they're working in a highly targeted um, industry or vertical. All right. You opened the door for a great conversation in the next segment, I think, about zero trust. So we'll get there mm -hmm. in a second. But first, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the discussion, Federal Work and Cyber Risk, Two Sides of the Same Coin, sponsored by Menlo Security on Federal News Network. Cyber attacks on federal agencies are accelerating. The rush to online services, SaaS apps, and the explosion of remote work has created a perfect storm for data breaches and security hacks. You need solutions that prevent attacks from reaching the network perimeter. Menlo Security, the only secure web gateway with an isolation core, protects web, SaaS, and email users without slowing down business. Learn how isolation protects productivity and takes malware out of the picture. Visit MenloSecurity.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the discussion, Federal Work and Cyber Risk, Two Sides of the Same Coin, sponsored by Menlo Security on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Jack Miller, the head of global professional services for Menlo Security. Now, Jack, before a break, we started talking about this idea of zero trust. I brought it up. Uh, every security conversation we have has to be around zero, zero trust. So let's start there. We, we, we've talked a lot about that's not a tool. It's a framework. It's not a silver bullet. We've heard all those things before, but how does Zero Trust fit into this broader discussion about remote work and understanding where the threat's coming from? Yeah. Uh, zero Trust is a really interesting one. I mean, it's 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 a phrase we've talked about for a lot of years. And uh, quite frankly, from, from my perspective and experience, and I, I spent 16 years as an enterprise CISO at, at four multi-billion dollar organizations, right? So it's... Uh, the, 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 the concept at a really high level is that, you know, I need to understand if I trust someone, I need to understand if I trust um, something, right, and how much I can trust before I interact with that, with that person or that, that asset. So, you know, an easy way to think about it would be kind of like in the, in the federal government space, top secret, right, or secret. If you don't have the sufficient level of trust, you're not going to be able to have access to that type of information. So in for a, for a personnel purposes, the way zero trust would be would be achieved 
would be that you know the FBI and other organizations would go in and do background checks and they would look back right so who is this person who is Jack Miller what has he done throughout his life and his career and and try to decide you know how much can we trust him what level of trust can we give to him and they may come back and say you know what we trust him a lot we give him access to everything or well we trust him a little so we'll give him access to some stuff but maybe not the the nuclear codes or something like that right so the 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 problem with that approach even with individuals is that is that it's based on um, a point in time. So you do the background check, you, you check and, and, and let's imagine you have full access to all the information to do a proper background check. You come up with a determination of, well, Jack is totally trustworthy. I can give him access to everything. Um, but you know, maybe a week, a month, two months later, a year later, two years later, right? Things change for me and maybe I shouldn't really be as trustworthy, but I still have that level of access, right? So that's why you'd have to go back and you'd have to do, you know, re-ups on your, on your clearances, right? And have those background checks reperformed. So when we, when we shift over to the, the, the technical world and we start looking at it from a standpoint of computers and the systems that we inter interact with, um, those systems are having millions of interactions a day. So they're continually changing. So that same problem um, really gets compounded in that even if you were able to, to properly assign the right level of trust to a computer or a website or something like that. It's at any given point in time. And all that happens over time is, is trust goes down. Trust usually doesn't go up over time because it's that one bad thing that runs on the computer that lowers the level of trust. The other two big problems with the, 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 the technical implementation challenges with implementing this approach to zero trust is that one, it doesn't scale. I mean, I remember back from the early 2000s in trying to implement this, it was kind of before they called it zero trust. But uh, I'm sure a lot of people on the on the listening to this will remember, right? Things like Tunnel Guard, where the, the the idea was, well, look, we're going to give VPN access to this employee when they're remote, so I want to interrogate their laptop before I let them to connect, so I can see, well, do they have the latest patches applied? Do they have the latest AV DATs installed, and all that kind of stuff. The the problem was that, um, you know, from anyone that tried to go down this path, it, it, the infrastructure to support it quickly became just a, you know, a cluster, right? For lack of a better term. I mean, uh, well, this person's got this version of the operating system. This person's got this and everybody was a little bit different. So now, well, where do we have to look for that artifact to determine the level of trust are all in different pace places or what, what artifact are we looking for? And, you know, so that was one problem that made it not scale well. The other issue is that that approach is based on this concept that we can accurately determine the level of trust of a person or entity. And the, the challenge with that approach is that we don't know what we don't know. So if I'm looking at a website and I'm trying to decide, look, is this website, can I trust it? Can I let my employees connect to this website? Um, I, I don't know necessarily what the latest, you know, um, indicators of attack or indicators of compromise are to look at, right? I don't know necessarily what the latest vulnerability is, but it could be a zero day to see if there's a patch applied. So if I don't know all of these things that are really relevant to the trust conversation, then if I'm trying to assign trust, I'm just taking a stab in the dark. And the majority of the time I'm going to miss. And so if you step back a little bit, right? And this is kind of what I kind of call the, the zero trust conundrum, right? Or, 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 you know, modifying our approach. It's really important we always include least privilege access into the zero trust conversation because that's the whole reason we're trying to establish a level of trust 
so we can determine how much access to give, right? So when we determine level of access, we base it on a couple things. One is how much do I trust you? And the other thing is, do you need to have access to this to be able to do your job, right? We have to look at both of those. So by, by implementing a, a process like isolation, we can, we can restrict access. So what happens today when people go to the internet, we give them far more access that they need to have to be able to do their job, right? So, so the first thing is access to do their job. Well, do they need access to this website or do they not need access to this website, right? It's, it's, uh, it's social media. They don't have any reason to access that for their job. Don't allow them access, right? Least privilege. But the next step is I'm giving them access, but what level do they really need to do their job? Does that website on the internet really have to be able to run code on the local desktop for that employee to do what they're trying to do? Or can we let the code run somewhere else so we've kind of removed the risk? So what we're really saying is that for most of our internet interactions, we can restrict access down to a point with isolation where it suddenly doesn't matter that much if, there, if, if we can't establish a level of trust. Right, so let me let me give you an example I always use, um, and I'm sure it's somewhat accurate, but you know I, I kind of make it up, but I think it tells a good story, right? So if we go back in time to the Wild West, we had a situation where these bank robbers would always come riding in on horses and rob banks, right? So they come riding in, they hop off the horse, they come in the bank, they pull out their gun, they go up to the teller, and they say, "Give me all your money." Well, what's the teller going to do? The teller's going to give them all the money as fast as they can and hope that they don't get shot, right? So banks are losing all this money. So what do they do? They said, "Well, we need to implement some controls." So let's hire a security guard who's armed and put him there in the bank. So they did this. And, um, you know, at that point, that was a deterministic control, right? So the security guard would stand there, maybe out in front of the bank, and would look at somebody riding up. So someone comes riding up on a horse, you know, maybe wearing a long duster and, and you know, looks kind of shady. And so the security guard, you know, is thinking, well, I don't know if I want to trust this person, right? Maybe they maybe they pull out the, 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 the wanted pictures, right? And they look at that. Well, does this guy match? anybody on the wanted pictures, right? It does, doesn't, you know, and that's how they determine, should I let this person in the bank or not? Well, what happens when it's a brand new bank robber? What happens when it's a, a grandmother or someone in disguise that comes up? The, the, the security guard's not going to know and they're going to let them in the bank. Once they're in the bank, right, now they have the same access to the teller. So somewhere along the line, somebody invented bulletproof glass. And they said, hey, look, I have a great idea. We're giving these people far more access than they need when they come in the bank to be able to make a deposit or a withdrawal. If we could put bulletproof glass between the teller and the, the customer, and maybe then put little holes in it, just enough, a little slit underneath it to be able to talk through it in here and be able to pass money back and forth underneath, right now, if the deterministic control fails, I don't say we turn our deterministic controls off. They're always still good to have because they help us understand the threats we're up against. But if it fails, and that grandmom comes into the bank who looked innocent and walks up to the teller and pulls out a gun and says, give me all of your money, right? The teller says, no, I'm not going to do it because I've taken away your access. I'm only giving you enough access to make a legitimate withdrawal or deposit. I'm not giving you enough access to be able to shoot me and steal my money, right? And so that's the approach we want to take here. By isolating these websites when our employees go to them, it, it eliminates the whole need of trying to interrogate the website to determine, is this website good? Is this website bad? Has this website been compromised, right? And it just says, you know what? I'm going to let you go to this website because I'm going to do it in a way that the website can't hurt you. I love the old West analogy. You're absolutely right. It took somebody somewhere to go. Instead of the bars, right? Maybe we should 
do something more. Right. And I think in, in, in many ways, that's what Asians I need to add like, the bars. I need to add the bars to my analogy. That's a good one, right? Because, you know, that stopped him from coming through, but it didn't stop him from holding up a gun, right? Right. You can, plenty of space between the bars to put the gun. Right. So I, I think the, the other piece, though, is, is and you brought this up, is you, you have to find the balance of, of restricting access but not do it so much that you take away their jobs and make their jobs hard to do because that will lead them down a path to the shadow IT and finding workarounds. Well, you don't let me do it on my work computer. I'll do it on my home computer. Well, but then I bring a document into my work computer because I email it to myself and I've just opened myself up to a different type of attack. So walk me through how to, how to strike that right balance because you also, if you remember one of the big complaints with the trusted internet connection is the same backhauling, right? You have to go out to the internet to come back to go back out, and, mm-hmm. and, and that just to that added latency and time. So, how do you find the right balance? Yeah, it's um, look, if our if our employees can't do their job, then we're not doing our job as security professionals, right? I mean, our, our job as security professionals is to enable them to be able to do their job without without being compromised, right? And so, we have to give them the access they have to have to do their job. I think. You make a great point, right? The the American worker is is very, um, you know, there's a lot of ingenuity there, right? And 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 look, from my experience, the vast majority of the time where you see something happen, it it doesn't happen because an employee was malicious and said, look, you know what? I want to do whatever I can do to to bring down this organization. It happens because they're just trying to get their work done, right? And so they take shortcuts or they create workarounds. And to your point. If, if security implements hurdles that make it too difficult for people to do their job, they have to get their job done. That's what their bonus is based on. That's what their review is based on. That's what potential promotions are based on, right? So they're going to find ways to be able to work around and do it and not necessarily understand that the additional risk that's, in, that's, that, that's um, introducing to the environment, right? So it's, it's, it's critical as we look at how we implement our security controls that we always keep that in mind that the, the number one the number one requirement is the user has to be able to do their job and you know look i worked for some organizations that were very um security conscious where i had a CISO basically an open checkbook and i could spend money on anything i wanted that i could implement and i had uh, i had regular updates and briefings to the board of directors and to the ceo and his uh, staff and <clears throat> you know look at the end of the day no matter how much somebody talks about how important security is, um, availability, right, and the ability for employees to do their job is always number one. So, you know, I've been down this path where we implemented uh, a scanning product, and um, and someone ran a scan somewhere with with the product that I implemented, and it 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 bumped a system offline because there was a vulnerability on that system. And you know what? Did I get an award for, hey, Jack, great job. Your team found this vulnerability in an old version of WebSphere before the bad guys could? No. We had to suddenly now redo all of our processes for how we could scan to ensure we would never take a system offline, right? So it's it's can really get in that one step forward, two step backward predicament really quickly if you start implementing controls that are restricting access for your employees to be able to do their job or causing them uh, you know, just additional challenges or hurdles. It's, um, it's a failed approach. We can't go down that approach. So uh, someone has to represent users and the user's best interest uh, throughout these projects. Hey, that's a great place to end it. I know we could talk longer, but unfortunately we are out of time for today. So let me thank my guest. Jack Miller is the head of global professional services for Menlo Security. Jack, I very much enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for your time. 
Great. Thank you very much, Jason. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to the discussion, Federal Work and Cyber Risk, Two Sides of the Same Coin, sponsored by Menlo Security on Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Menlo Security. Thank you for listening to the discussion, Federal Work and Cyber Risk, Two Sides of the Same Coin, sponsored by Menlo Security on Federal News Network.